Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. All right, everyone, welcome to the next episode of Dirty Drinks. We are up to episode 15 now. How are you today, Rick? I am pretty well, thank you. Uh, it was a nice crisp morning. It feels like fall is here, which is my favorite season. So that was kind of nice. I think it is. Yeah, fall is here. I think we're going to start seeing all of the, the pumpkin spice things pop out, aren't we? Yeah, hopefully there's a good beer or two out there that we can try that's got a little pumpkin in it. Oh, those are always good. They are. I am not a huge beer fan, but I like those beers. So. <laughs> well, we have a guest today from your alma mater. Yeah, super excited to have somebody from Wash U who's very active on Twitter, and we've gotten to kind of know him a little bit via that medium. And so now we're going to get a chance to actually chat. So this is awesome. Yeah, so um, Andre Speck, I'm an ID doc from Wash U, and uh, I focus uh, on all things fungal. So if it's moldy or yeasty, budding or branching, it's kind of in my wheelhouse. And um, it is already pumpkin spice season. I uh, saw a sign not that long ago that mortified me, which was a pumpkin spice pretzel, um, like a soft pretzel filled with pumpkin spice, which I just thought was the most horrendous thing I could have ever imagined until one of our other faculties, uh, member Jenny Kwan, sent me a picture uh, of pumpkin spice spam. It wow. is a thing, it has been made, it exists in the world, and now you can't unknow that. Wow, that's yeah. something else. I don't know. Yeah, no, I... That's going to take up a little corner of my brain now <laughs> that could have been used for other information. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about looking for some pumpkin spice thing, but I'm sure I will avoid the spam. Yeah, that just seems... Oof. You know what's going to happen? Somebody's going to put it on a pizza or something, you know, and that's just going to be horrible. Oh, I'm sure it will. Um, but it, it, apparently, I don't think they make it anymore. I think it was a few years ago, and apparently it's selling on eBay now for quite a lot of money. Um, so if you go on eBay and you're willing to drop a couple hundred dollars, you can find yourself some uh, pumpkin spice spam. My gosh. That just sounds that's just, awful. That's crazy. That is just crazy. <laughs> So, well, welcome, Andres. We're so happy to have you. It's, it's great to, we're getting, we're starting to branch out. She said this is our 15th podcast and we're starting to get some people from outside of our little area here in the world in Omaha. So it's great to, to get uh, more of a global perspective on uh, medicine and why people are doing what they're doing and everything else. And you mentioned a few things when you introduced yourself about fungi. So we're definitely going to have to talk about all that stuff, which uh, obviously you're super active on Twitter, always getting asked questions and answering questions and everything else. I'm more of a follower than I am a poster. So, um, but I like to read all of you guys's interesting conversations and everything else. It's a medium that for me, you know, I'm a little older, so I'm like, okay, I'll get on it. I'll, I'll do some things, but not like uh, the younger generation that's super active on it. And it's pretty amazing. So thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I ended up, um, I, I'm definitely not a social media uh, native. I, um, I, I, I think I have a Facebook account that I don't know my password to. And uh, I, I joined Twitter simply because I saw that Altmetric tracked um, 
how often it's posted on Twitter. So I'm like, well, that, mu that must mean there's some discussion, medical discussion happening on Twitter because otherwise, why would they track it? Um, and then I just kind of start, started seeing things. I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And I started following and then I started posting and it just kind of happened. Nothing was planned. Nothing, it, it wasn't part of a design. It just kind of evolved that way. Sometimes like, organic is best, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I think organically you have become like the worldwide fungal expert. <laughs> there's, there's plenty of people who know more than me. Um, but uh, I, I am, I, I've, I've made it a point for a long time that I wanted to be approachable, right? So I decided a while ago that I, that I wanted to do fungus or I wanted to do something for my research that was kind of niche and interesting and different and difficult but at the same time, I decided I wanted to do something that um, I would still see um, so that I wasn't, you know, specializing in, uh, in guinea worm. And then like, you know, you never see a case in your whole entire life, even though you've done all the research on it and you don't get to help people. So I kind of did that. And so I started doing more and more work on fungus. People started having more and more questions. And I just decided, you know what? I'm going to make myself available for everybody because it seems like a lot of people have a lot of questions. And to be really frank, I learned so much from those questions because I, I, I don't think that that could be a complication until I get asked about the complication. And then it's like, oh, let's solve that problem. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Let's go back to the beginning. Uh, so obviously you're a physician, an infectious disease specialist. What, what uh, led you down that path? So I, um, I entered medical school wanting to be a neurosurgeon because that's where the smartest kids went. Um, and I then found out that that wasn't where the people I thought the smartest were went, went. And I thought that was where ID that turned out to be ID. And so I was debating between ID and I liked cardiology because I was obsessed with EKG. So I found it was, I thought it was so amazing how much you could learn from such a little squiggle on a piece of paper. Um, and then I did my third year rotations in medical school. And I had the first medic, I did psychology first, and then I did surgery after that. And I realized that I was fascinated by about seven or so patients that I had seen during the surgical rotation. And all seven of those were infections. <laughs> so I was like, well, maybe that's telling me something that like the seven people that I, like, I, I really was fascinated by were infections. And then I ended up doing a few more rotations and it just the pattern repeated itself, right? The infections made sense. They were fascinating. They made me really want to learn more. And, and I love those moments of, you know, we had this really bad um, sporotrichoid reaction on a lady uh, coming up her leg and I, 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 we didn't know what it was. And I ended up talking to her about her exposures and found out that she, you know, she just came back from the Philippines where she was walking on the shallow reefs and uh, we diagnosed her like, then we did a biopsies and we diagnosed her with mycobacterium marinum. And it kind of just combined this. And it was just this beautiful moment of like, well, this, this is what medicine is. You know, it's the, it's the medical detectives, you know, it's, it's going to be Sherlock Holmes on a daily basis that, and, and so I just, I fell in love with it at that point. And I joined IDSA as a third year medical student and I've been ID bound since then. That's an awesome story. So then um, how did you kind of work your way into being that fungal expert? I know we talked about it a little bit before, but 
Sure. Yeah. So I, um, I, I loved all things ID uh, and I didn't discriminate. Uh, and then when I got to residency, I uh, met this wonderful physician named Lori Proyo. And she was a, she was a younger faculty member. I think at that point she was an assistant professor and she was the expert at rush for fungal infections. And she would always be called on to discuss things and all the old gray men uh, would look at her with awe as she was describing things that she didn't understand. And I was just in awe of her myself. And so I asked if I could spend some time in her clinic and she, she, she graciously accepted. And I saw all these amazing cases. And I, I, I loved that idea that I could do research on something and then also take care of patients with that. And it's complicated and it's difficult. And there's a lot of variety within fungus, even though it's specialized. And um, I just, you know, I went off to fellowship and I came to Wash U and I was like, well, there's nobody doing mycology here. Uh, so I don't know if that's really going to work out the way I wanted to work out. And then one day in July, I was rounding on a Saturday with uh, Bill Powderly. And uh, I, um, he, we saw a whole bunch of patients, you know, we, you know, tour de force that he is, we kind of just saw tons and tons of patients really quickly. And, and we were walking back to the office and he asked me, uh, what do you want to do? And I told him I want to do academics. And he said, well, what do you want to focus on? And I said, I would love to do mycology, but I don't know who I could find to be a mentor, you know, at Wash U. And he said, me. I was going to say, he's been known to do a little bit of fungal research in the past. I mean, he's pretty, uh, Cryptococcus was kind of his uh, main thing back in the day. It was. The thing is, like, you know, when you're a first year fellow, you don't ask the program, uh, the <laughs> guy who's the head of the division, who's also the, the director of the Institute of Public Health and like the president elect of IDSA to be your mentor. You just don't think that they don't have the time for you. Right. Uh, but but Bill is such a, a generous person with his time that he was like, well, I'll be your mentor. I'm like, but all the things I just said, that doesn't make sense. You don't have time for me. He goes, I'll be your mentor. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then we just walked away and like, well, I guess he's my mentor now. And, uh, he, you know, he, he, he mentored me. He, then we, in, in, in second year of fellowship, I picked up a second clinic in his clinic and we just kind of got fungus to, to be brought there into that clinic more. And I, I just learned a lot from him and I continued to get involved in every place I could. And we learned more and more. And then that clinic just kind of became my clinic and grew. Um, and it's just been growing by leaps and bounds and we get referrals from everywhere. And now I just, you know, every day in clinic, we learn something new and we see things I've never seen before. And, and, and it's just, it's been, it, it's been a time slot hit, I guess. I just, you know, showed up and things happened and I've been lucky to just be riding the wave. That's awesome. It's a great story. You're yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's really I owe it all to Bill's generosity. Very cool. It's all about knowing the right people, right? Yeah. Networking. Yeah, and, it, and just being lucky to be rounding with them because I wasn't even supposed to be rounding with them. I was literally just, he was covering that Saturday. Very cool. Well, I am super fascinated with uh, fungi and molds, uh, you know, even outside of medicine. Do you dabble in mycology outside of medicine? Like do you go mushroom hunting or anything like that? I have been known to forage. Um, I, um, I actually 
not that long ago, I saw a giant puffball in 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 my uh, neighbor's backyard, <laughs> and um, I remember uh, kind of just walking by every morning as I walk my dog with uh, every morning. And there's a, just there's this big giant puffball. I'm like, do I dare or do I not dare? Do I dare? Do I not dare? <laughs> and eventually, I was too chicken to trespass uh, for a giant puffball, and and it, it got to the point where it was um, it got old and it got turned all into spores and uh, eventually i saw them and i was like hey just so you know guys know apparently giant puffballs pop up in your backyard and uh they're highly edible and delicious just make them you know and they're like oh what do you do i'm like i'll oh, just treat them like chicken fried steak um and uh they're like oh can we pick this one i'm like no 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 this one's way past its prime and uh, i actually picked it up and I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I took it and I, I put it in a bag and I kept it from exploding. And I brought it back to my backyard and I went, Poof. the whole thing, the whole backyard is now filled with uh, giant uh, uh, puffball spores, the whole entire backyard. So I'm really hoping next year I'll be getting them growing in my own backyard. That's awesome. Uh, I need some in my backyard. Yeah, we had a... We had an, uh, an MP in our clinic, uh, Catherine Williamson, who used to go mushroom picking around here. And she's a native in St. Louis. So she knows all the great places. And she would send me these uh, pictures all the time. And it would be like a five gallon bucket full of morels and things like that. And I'm like, Catherine, I hate you. Like, if you're going to send me these pictures, you need to geotag them. Okay. Like, I need to know where this is. If you are, if you're just going to be showing me the pictures to torture me, you're not a nice human being. Um, but, you know, I'm still looking to find stuff and, and we have a new, um, an intern who had worked with me who turns out their uh, brother's wife is a professional forager. So I've been learning more from, from her. Um, we, I found my first indigo uh, milk cap, which I don't know nice. if you've ever had pleasure to see those. Um, Only they in look pictures. Like a thing, yeah, you do look like a thing you should never eat but they're edible uh, and they're just a wonderful way to scare the bejesus out of a, a dinner party. Cause it's like a indigo, indigo blue mushroom that's speckled with tan. And, and then you cut into it and it like bleeds a blue ink and it just looks like somebody murdered a Smurf. And it, and it just looks like it's something that's definitely going to kill you. And then you put that in their dinner and you just see who's brave enough to eat. That's funny. <laughs> I know I've been following all of the foraging Facebook groups now and fall mushroom season is really hot and heavy. So. Yeah. Chicken of the woods is super hot right now. Yeah. If yeah. You, if I actually, I, I'm not on, I am on Reddit and Reddit has a good subreddit of mycology uh, where I've been following a lot of stuff that's popping up. Uh, right. So right now I'm seeing tons and tons and tons of chicken of the woods and tons of hens, hen of the woods and a lot of Amanita muscarinica. Um, which for those of you who are not foragers, don't eat that. Um, those are the, <laughs> the things that they always draw as mushrooms. So they're like the white stalked mushroom with the red cap and the white spots on it. Mm -hmm. Um, highly toxic. Um, but, the, but it's also highly like psychedelic. So, and apparently there are some ways that you can like kill the toxin while not killing the psychedelic. I, 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 I don't know the details of it, but it's like, it's been used for like shamanistic rituals and, and things like that. Don't try this at home, right? Yeah, don't, yeah, don't. Well, you know what they say, though? All mushrooms are edible. Uh, some are Only just once. edible more than once. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, I know up here, people have been finding a lot of uh, oyster mushrooms and mm. um, lion's mane, big lion's Ooh. mane. Yeah, lion's mane is, uh, I tried once growing lion's mane because uh, you can buy these logs that are uh, inoculated with lion's mm -hmm. mane. And uh, I, I failed miserably. Um, I, could, <laughs> I could grow, I could grow oysters okay, but I, I did it when I was a resident, you know, and I, getting home and misting your mushroom log uh, once a day or twice a day is not a thing that I am apparently organized enough to do. So I think yeah, I got like gonna... that. I got this, it's like $30 for this log. And I think I got like a thumb size piece of mushroom out of it. You guys are going to have to put pictures of these things out there so that we know what uh, we're looking for. Cause I'm certainly not going to go out and just pick up a mushroom and eat it because I, I do not need a liver transplant. No, 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 absolutely not. Uh, but there are these wonderful, there's a couple of wonderful books that I've come across. Uh, one of my favorite one is like the, the edible mushrooms of Illinois and, you know, Illinois, Nebraska, Missouri, they're all very similar. And I like the approach of it uh, very well for the beginner because the approach of it isn't to make you into an expert mushroom hunter. And here is a book that will identify every single mushroom that you see on in the forest, because that shouldn't be your goal. If you're going to start foraging, the goal of it is like, here's 20 common edible mushrooms. And this is where you find them. This is how you find them. And if you find things that look like them, but aren't quite them, this is how you tell the difference. And so it's very friendly, very user friendly. Uh, and if you learn like 20 mushrooms, it's a great way to start. Uh, you know, you, you start picking up some bolets, some morels, some uh, shiitake or maitake, things like that. And you'll find some wonderful stuff and you will not need a liver transplant, which is a, always a good thing to shoot for. It's one of my goals. I, you yeah. know. That and not having oral lesions, right? Yep. <laughs> or or having mucor in my sinuses or my lungs or something that I have to worry about uh, calling you to see what to take. Generally, you don't want any uncontrolled replication of fungus in your body. <laughs> <laughs> Very good advice. So are you a Midwestern guy from, uh, from the get-go? You mentioned Illinois. So did you so I'm originally from the Balkans. Um, I was born and raised in the, the former Yugoslavia. And uh, I uh, came to Chicago in 94 as a refugee. So I came from the, during the, the Bosnian conflict, I came to Chicago as a, as a refugee. And uh, I trained there all the way up until fellowship. And uh, I came to fellowship to St. Louis and I've been here since. So I've been a Midwestern guy now since 1994. So a long time, but originally from uh, Europe. Nice. So we've had uh, a few international medical professionals. Um, how did you find it transitioning over into the United States? So I transitioned around uh, sixth grade. Um, and I came to this country, I knew, I want to say about 20 words of English uh, total. And uh, I found it difficult, <laughs> um, you know, tra transitioning into the American education system without speaking English was very difficult. But luckily enough, I was at that age where it was still easy enough to learn the language. Uh, so the first year was rough. 
but afterwards, it got a lot easier. Yeah, I would imagine that would be extremely difficult. I mean, you wouldn't even, you seem like a native English speaker now. Yeah, it's that age. I think it's like that between 10 to 13 is that age when you can still like learn the new language um, without, with, while still become, and become like almost like a native speaker while not losing the old one. So um, I was lucky in that sense. So are you still fluent in your home mm -hmm. language? Yeah, still fluent. Um, I, you know, we, my family uses it exclusively still. So we, we, you know, and my daughter is learning it um, because it's so easy for children to learn a language at home that it would be silly not to. Yeah. Yeah. So um, coming to the U.S., uh, you know, medicine, you know, going to college and then deciding to do pre-med or go to medical school. I mean, you talked about your love for ID and how you kind of just fell into ID with the cases that you saw. But uh, what drove you? Anybody in the family, any role models growing up that, that were in medicine that, that led you down this path? So my, uh, my time in my entry into medicine is kind of ironic. Um, my great grandmother was a nurse uh, and she was an incredible woman. But that's really the only person in my, my, my family who's in the medical field. And uh, I, um, I wasn't planning on medicine in college. I actually, up until senior year in college, I was planning on doing, going the PhD route and being a researcher. And in my junior and senior year, I helped my uh, PI that I was working with at the time doing developmental neuroscience, uh, helped him write an R01. And I hated the process from root to stem. Um, I mean, I just hated it so much that I decided this wasn't for me anymore. Um, you know, grant writing just felt like the most vile type of writing. Um, it was it was such a profoundly defensive writing. Um, and it felt almost like professional begging. And so I decided, nope, this is not for me. And uh, so I kind of had a little bit of a soul searching and I decided that uh, and I met a cardiologist that I really liked. And I felt like being a doctor, the, like a medical doctor who specialized in, in medical care, uh, clinician was being a professional consumer of science. And I said, well, I think that would be good for me. And so I, I kind of went that route thinking I would do the full um, private practice route or, or you know, academic clinician kind of a route. And then, you know, that fateful meeting with Bill Potterly, um, yeah. he, he said, you know, you got what it takes, you should just try it. And I was like, well, what's the worst that can happen? I can try it. Um, and I love it. I still hate the grant writing. Um, I, I still think it's, it, it's, it's a vile way to do it, but it, it's, it's worth it for the stuff that, for all the cool stuff that I get to do afterwards. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a necessary pain and I'm now more mature than I was when I was a 21 year old going, oh God, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, so, you know, it, you're just going to accept the pain for the pleasure. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely true. Do you have somebody there that you work with that does the bench type research that you can then translate into clinical stuff or uh, somebody so somewhere? We're, we're growing the mycology group here uh, more and more. Um, there's a couple of folks who do cryptococcal work um but unfortunately they do like they do not unfortunately they're wonderful researchers just absolutely 
brilliant researchers. And they're doing, but they're doing very, very basic stuff. They're doing, you know, biochemistry of the cell wall kind of stuff. And uh, it, it has been a little bit difficult to kind of translate. I've worked with them a little bit, giving them samples, uh, getting actual like isolates taken from humans to, to try to make things uh, better, but it hasn't really kind of grown into a full like uh, in integrated process. Um, but I have worked now with a few people and we're trying, I'm trying to grow that uh, translational thing in mycology here at WashU more. Um, <clears throat> and most of my work is very clinical. So I do a lot of very like, you know, either prospective uh, following of patients or enrolling into clinical trials, or we do kind of like retrospective epidemiological stuff. And uh, so there is at this point a very minor uh, lab component but I have some feelers out there and I'm hoping that over the next couple of years we'll get growth of that uh, component uh, because I think that would be a good thing for us to have um, and, and a good way for the field to grow and, and God only knows mycology as a field needs to grow. Yeah, have you ever had the opportunity to work with slime mold? No, you know, they don't, they don't really cause human disease. Um, I know but I'm I, just fascinated by it. I, they are fascinating <laughs> things. Um, you know, it's, it's there. And I love just seeing them on my, um, like when we mulch our backyard and we, we see the slime molds pop up and, and I'm like, and I look at my wife, I'm like, honey, honey, look at the slime mold. And like, you are a weird, weird. <laughs> um, you try like get it in a little dish in your house and try growing it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's amazing when you can like, it, it's a, it's a pet that you can feed. It, they're really interesting little buggers. And so, yeah, I, I think they're absolutely fascinating, but I've never gotten to work with them um, research wise. Um, but like, yeah, I've, I've definitely debated like bringing them into a petri dish at home and like just giving them a little, little dog food here and there, just to like watch them crawl back and forth across the dish um because it's just it's weird and it's funny and it's interesting <laughs> there's going to be like a corner in your house of mad scientists slime mold containers <laughs> i have definitely had to over the years fight that uh um mad scientist vibe uh because i've always been that that kooky kid you know i've had multiple uh aquariums i've had you know i've had let's call them non-conventional pets uh turtles lizards those kinds of things and i've always been kind of like that eclectic stuff and i've always loved like i've built terrariums and um so that's just been always the kind of thing i've loved and um i, I love also just finding random things I, I i love going on a hike and just finding a plant i've never seen before and um, I've, I've started to get more interested in foraging, um, outside of mycology. There's a, there's an incredible restaurant here in St. Louis that if you're ever in town, you absolutely have to go to, it's called Bull Rush. And the guy is, a the guy has a PhD and then he went off and became a chef and the restaurant's premise is that he wants to use only historic ingredients. And so the ingredients that you get to use in the restaurant is um, things that would have been available here, uh, not, in, not in St. Louis, which is a metropolitan town, 1880s, but in like St. Jen, which is about an hour, about 60 to 90 miles outside of St. Louis, which back then was like the backwoods country. 
right? Because if in horse-drawn carriage days, 90 miles, that, that's, a, that's a schlep. That's a week's worth of travel, right? Um, and so the, the, the food you eat is incredibly different and delicious. And he's just such a great chef. And I learned, I've been there a few times and end up talking to him and I learned so much from him. So like I learned, for example, that Missouri grows its own native papaya. Uh, they're called papas that I didn't know about uh, that are really, they're custardy and creamy, very interesting fruit. And then all these different ingredients I've never heard of. And then they do these really cool things like, um, you know, if you think about, if you make a drinks menu, uh, mix the drinks menu, you have to sour your drinks. You're, you know, the souring is an incredibly important thing. Well, Missouri didn't have lemons and limes and oranges and citrus fruit in the 1880s, right? Because we're were too cold for them so what they do is they make their own like elderberry or elderberry flower kombucha or um you know uh, blackberry vinegars and just these really cool things that they do and so i learned a lot from him because i grow some interesting plants myself so i, I uh i grow a, a miracle berry uh i have a, a miracle berry bush in my home which is a berry from um western africa i think that when you bite into it for the next two or so hours, it changes the all sourness to sweet. Hmm. So you can take, you can drink lemon juice and it tastes like limoncello. Uh, huh. Vinegar tastes like sugar water. Um, and it just, and it even, it even doesn't have to be in there. It just changes your taste buds for hours. And I was telling him about that one time I was eating there um, at, at the restaurant and he, he was amazed by it. And then when I had a flush, I brought it to him and then we maybe formed a friendship um, and we talked about it. And so I've learned so much about the, that foraging from him. That's pretty cool. That's, uh, that's really cool. So it doesn't sound like you've sold your wife on your foraging and your interests. How about your daughter? Are you making any headway there? Oh, so she's 13 months old now. Oh, so you're too, <laughs> so a little too yet. young. You're not yet, huh? Well, too young. But I, I, you know, I did some foraging with my grandfather. And it was some of the most wonderful memories I have of my life um, is because he, we, you know, we, we grew up on the Adriatic and there was like a pine forest, right? Uh, not pine, um, uh, uh, evergreen forest right on the water. And uh, we would go in the, in the fall, we would go uh, hunting for bullets. Uh, I don't think they were Boletta sedilis, the classic porcini mushrooms, but they were something in that family. And I just remember like going, th walking through the woods with him and like picking up pine cones and like pu pulling over pine needles so we can find where the they're growing. And I just, those are just some really wonderful memories. And, and Missouri just has a lot of stuff you can find like that. So I'm really hoping that she gets to grow up with a little bit of that as well. I love to take my kids out foraging. It's really fun go hunting for berries in the summertime. Yeah. Um, they were really fascinated to find out that Queen Anne's lace, the flower is just mm -hmm. wild carrots. Yeah, that, that's all, it's just wild carrots. Yeah, you can dig it up and you can roast it in the oven and it's just like a white carrot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how much, um, how much we've kind of lost that connection to nature. Um, and I really, I, I love having those moments. And I've always been that nature kid. You know, I've always like, I was always that kid who would like bring home, like, like my parents were forever mortified. Um, Cause I would randomly like, just come home like mom, look. And mom would be like, oh God, what is it? 
and it would be like a hedgehog. <laughs> like I would just find a hedgehog in the woods, and I would, my 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 seven year old mind was just like, I'm gonna pick up this spiky animal and I'm gonna bring it home, um, or I'd bring a tortoise, or you know, I would you know bring home grasshoppers and lightning bugs and caterpillars and things like that. And I just I've always loved that nature, and I think that's also part of what I love about mycology. You know, is there's there's millions of them. You know, I, I keep hearing about a new mold that I'd never heard of before. Not that frequently, right? We just published the case in OFID of uh, Thyronectria austroamericana, which is a mold that I had never heard of before. And then when I went to look it up, I could not find that it caused ever a case of human disease before. And when I looked at it in the in the ecology literature, it turns out in, it causes uh, cankers, which are those big nasty uh, erosions in uh, trees, and it primarily infects the the honey locust tree, which is actually native to St. Louis. So then I went to talk to the patient, and I was like, "Do you do you have a honey? Do you, have you ever been around a honey locust tree?" And he goes, "What is a honey locust tree?" Right. Um, so then I pulled up pictures and honey locust trees are very distinctive because they have these like giant spikes and they're like a three inch spike that comes right out of the bark uh, in clusters. And so I showed it to him. I was like, yeah, I have one in my backyard. I, I, I scrape against it all the time. Right. And so we, we thought that was a really cool thing and we published it. Um, and then the day I publish it, I got an email from a ER physician in Kentucky telling me that he had never heard of it before until he was diagnosed with tenosynovitis uh, because right after he took down a honey locust tree in his, on his property. So like he went with like, and he broke it down and he got, he got stung by thorns and then he got infected himself. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> like this is why I love mycology. There's just so much stuff and you know, there's millions of molds out there that we don't think about medically because they don't cause human disease, but you get the right mold into the right space, the right time, you know, they're not picky. Um, molds are not, they're not that David Edinburgh planet earth moment where you have that one flower and that one hummingbird that have evolved the perfect structure of the flower and the perfect uh, beak to fit just into one. That's not molds. Molds eat anything. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're the definition of the generalist. They will consume whatever they land on if they can. And so if you, if you shove enough spores into the right place at the right time in the right host, you know, I, they can, just about any of them can do it. Yep, that pretty much sums it up. What did you treat that with? Uh, we ended up giving amphotericin for a while. Um, and then another uh, physician who was treating him earlier, um, who had, before they referred to me, had tried doing uh, itraconazole because it had the lowest MIC um, and it got worse. And then so we tried uh, different, we tried to get him voriconazole and he ended up having um, uh, hallucinations. And then I think we ended up uh, finally were able to get him into isabuconazole. Mm -hmm. And he did, he finished off some time on ISA and did really well, actually. So he got fully cured and he's doing great. That's awesome. Yeah. Great case. What's yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing about mycology. They're just always, there's tons of cases like that all the time. The, uh, the fellows, I think, so we have a, uh, the second year fellows rotate through my clinic for about eight to 10 weeks a year. 
Um, I think they both love it and hate it um, at the same time because it, it is a very busy clinic and the, the patients are very complicated and I know that they work hard. Uh, so I think they definitely don't love, they don't love the amount of work that they are compared to the other clinics, but they see stuff and they're like, wow, this is really interesting. And I was like, I know, and I get to do this every week. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, we do. Um, me and one of my colleagues do non-tuberculous mycobacterial clinic here, which is, a, you know, a similar type of neglected mm -hmm. potential pathogen that we just don't completely understand and can cause all kinds of crazy stuff if you let it. Yeah, we have the same thing. So we have a we have an NTM clinic as well um, that's being let, and and they're really fascinating, and I I, I really appreciate having that clinic there because I understand that my level of, of management for mycobacteria is pretty good. Uh, but the, when, when you have expert care of mycobacteria, that's a different uh, level. And so I really appreciate having them there because when things, things get often get sent to me, you know, because an aspergillus grows out of the lung and I'm like, this looks like Mac to me. And then I'll get the sputums and like, sure enough, three out of three are Mac and the aspergillus was just kind of hanging out. And then I get to give them to an expert as opposed to me trying to muddle through it. Yes, yeah, definitely, a, definitely an interesting world. That's for sure. Go ahead, Sarah. Well, I was just going to ask, um, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen since you've been a mycologist? Craziest thing I've ever seen. It depends on what you mean by crazy, right? Um, I think for me, the most disturbing thing I've ever seen is I've seen about two or three cases of uh, rhinocerebral mucor in people who are immunocompetent. And uh, all three of them have been men in their 30s. And that scares the bejesus out of me as a man in my 30s. Um, who, you know, it's, it's a mold eating their face and into their brain and their eyes. Um, and there is nothing that, there's no risk factor. There, it's just happening. And that is a really scary moment for me because um, you do mycology long enough, you start to realize that like, you will never be away from mold. Um, you know, if you go to the International Space Station, they recently had like a mold issue where they had to like clean out, they had to clean out the International Space Station because they had too much mold on it. Um, everywhere in space, the, everywhere in the world you are is full of mold. And, um, you know, in the process of this interview, we've all inhaled multiple spores of mucor. And that's really scary. <laughs> To me, that is really profoundly scary moments because that is, you know, it's on, you cannot get away from it. Uh, it's the fact that you're always inhaling them. Yeah. Good points. How many times just, you know, on that bent, you know, we also see the people who think they were exposed to some toxic mold and, uh, you know, are, are worried about it or they found a mold in their house and they're, you know, scared to death what is your advice in those situations for, for those types of situations? Because they're typically way different than when you're seeing it in a clinical setting with a patient that clearly has a disease, right? Oh, absolutely. So 
this actually is a thing that gets referred to my clinic where or patients will come to the clinic on their own with this. Uh, and it has a few different uh, representations, right? So one of them is, um, is people who are diagnosed with chronic disseminated or candle overgrowth syndromes, um, which are kind of, which have become a relatively common thing in, um, in functional medicine and uh, uh, holistic medicine, herbal medicine, as kind of diagnoses that they treat with that. And it's usually, it's not real. These are, you know, they, what happens, they get swabbed and they grow candida. Yeah, we all grow candida. Uh, we all have candida on us all the time. And so that, that happens a lot. And then you really kind of have to try to do years of deprogramming that some of these patients have had uh, by people telling them that they have something they don't have. And that takes a long time. And, and then actually that kind of a referral um, or a self-referral gave me what I think is the most amazing sentence ever written or ama uh, most amazing paragraph ever written in the history of medical records. Um, because I got this referral for Canada overgrowth. A lady came in from um, about five or six states away to see me because her doctor had been treating her for Canada overgrowth for years. And then I got the records from the doctor and the sentence, the, the paragraph read, patient has, it tests positive for osteopenia, which we, which as we know, is the same thing as osteoporosis, which as we know is caused by streptococcus cerevisiae, which is a fungus, a very close relative of MRSA, and the only way to treat this is one year of albendazole. <laughs> and I just remember sitting there going like, I don't even know where to start with this. Wow. There's like seven non sequiturs in one line of thought. Um, and so it, I get that sometimes. And those moments are difficult. And it's really, they go one of two ways. One of the main ways they get treated is uh, in those situations, people get told to do is they do incredibly low sugar diets. I mean, they can't do fruit ever. Like I, they, they can't eat an apple because that's too much sugar. And so it's sometimes they're just like so happy that I gave them the diagnosis. They can now eat an apple. Um, and so that goes that. Then the other way is like, well, why did I just spend five years not in? So they get very, sometimes they get very angry. On the other hand, the one thing I do get a lot also is the, that mold exposure. And that is a, a difficult thing because mold exposure can cause problems, but it's also one of the most overhyped things in, in modern culture. Um, mycotoxins do exist. We do inhale them. Uh, people, but there are also labs that test for mycotoxins where virtually every single human being will come up positive uh, because there's so high sense, such high sensitivity tests. And like I said, we all inhale mold constantly and so the fact that we're all positive is not surprising but is that causing any of the symptoms i don't think it is and so usually what i do is i tell people um i look to make sure that there isn't an invasion because um i i once had a patient who literally came to me for that and by the time i was did my due diligence and i i, I was able to walk through the process 
turns out that the patient had an aspergilloma in their sinuses. And so you have to make sure you don't miss something like that. But then at that point, you just say, get out of that environment. You don't want to necessarily be inhaling mold all the time. But the kind of molds that causes invasive disease isn't most of the time the kind of mold that causes uh, building disease. Because those are molds that are more specialized for plant matter. Because you know most of our current buildings are built of plants. And even if they're not, the coverings are. So drywall has cellulose in it. Uh, two by fours have cellulose in it. Walls have, you know, uh, doors, uh, frames, all those, that's what they're feeding on. And so those aren't really specialized for humans. Um, so we don't have to worry about most of the time, but you don't want to be inhaling that. Um, and it's more likely to cause things like asthma, AD, you know, uh, ADPA, sinusitis, things like that. And you don't want that. You really don't want that. Uh, but it's unlikely that, you know, just because some company came in and they saw some spores of aspergillus that you now have invasive pulmonary aspergillosis. And so it's a lot of reassurance, um, which sometimes goes well and sometimes doesn't. Um, you know, some people are really just really scared. But the real solution to that is get the heck out of that environment. Yeah, I'm well, just, awesome. Awesome advice. Thanks. I'm just beyond fascinated with everything you have going on. And I have so many more questions, but we're quickly running out of time. Um, so I think that I will go with a couple of standards that we ask people. Um, are you reading or binge watching anything right now? I just finished reading a book that blew my mind as to how good it is. And it is not out yet. I think it's coming out December 1st. Um, it's called The Mother of Learning. It's, it was available as a uh, web uh, the guy, really kind of, as while he was writing it, put it up on um, online as a blog series, um, and it is a wonderful book about a kid who's kind of like a high school, fifteen years old, um, and he is. It's a fantasy novel, so he's a mage, um, and he is stuck in a time loop, and every month the month repeats itself. And it comes from the old uh, Latin phrase, repetition is the mother of all learning. And uh, so it, it's how he improves himself as a person um, by spending decade and more of the same month repeating itself, uh, which, is my, which is definitely my weakness because one of my favorite movies of all time is also Groundhog day and i absolutely love that and a lot of times when i'm writing grants i will be very meta and i will put the groundhog day on repeat so that even the groundhog day the movie itself is repeating in the background as i'm writing um and so i just love that idea it's like a very buddhist idea you know of getting to relive the same thing over and over and over again and the only thing that changes is you right the world is the same but how do you make the better world by being a better you and so I've, I love the book. It's the, the guy has just gotten um, the, the uh, book deal. And so I'm really excited that, that it's doing really well for him because it's an incredible book and he's going to do so well uh, long-term. Yeah, we will have to look for that. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on and all the discussion. Did you have any questions for us or anything that... Uh, uh, you'd feel like asking or no, no requirement at all. It's just, we just like to give people, since we picked on them for an hour, we like to give them the opportunity to pick on mostly Sarah, 
but uh... <laughs> uh, I'm going to ask you the same question that everybody has been asking me because I'm hoping that you have a better answer than I do. When's this COVID thing going to end? <laughs> wow. Um, Sarah can take that one. <laughs> that is like the question of the decade, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I hope soon, but the way it's going, probably not very soon. That's my answer. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm hoping we get to go back to normal by next year because I can't do 2020 part three. No, I'm hoping by spring. I'm just worried that we're going to have a, a potentially bad winter. I mean, last winter, you know, we've shown that masking and social distancing, you don't get influenza, you don't get RSV, mm-hmm. you don't get all those things. But, you know, everybody's over masking and social distancing now. So I have a feeling that we're going to see those in addition to COVID, whatever variant of the day happens to be uh, prevalent uh, at that point in time. But maybe we'll emerge in the spring as, uh, you know, uh, a new civilization with, uh, without having to wear masks and uh, be able to be around p- each other again. Yeah, I'm really hoping that that's the case. Yeah, great. Well, thanks again. Um, if I come down to St. Louis sometime, I'll have to look you up. Um, I love, love going to cards games was, was bummed when they lost the one game playoff, but they had to play the Dodgers. So, I mean, what can you expect? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm looking forward. if you ever come down, they'll be happy to see you and we can maybe go to bull rush. Yeah, that would be, that would be terrific. Maybe IDSA will be actually in person again sometime or something. I hope so. I hope I, I'm ready for virtual conferences to be an option, not a requirement. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks we're again. Racking oh, up pleasure. the dirty drinks road trips, aren't we, Rick? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have one to we have one to uh, to Northern California that we have to do too now. So we're 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 gonna have to get a better funding source. Yeah, no kidding. If you go to Northern California, let me know. I'm uh, I'm happy to be there uh, in case you need an input of a mycologist. Yeah, I'm sure that they'll need something. <laughs> I mean, some of the grapes might have some kind of an infection on them that you might need oh, to ac- figure absolutely. out. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> happy to happy to diagnose the molds of the grapes absolutely <laughs> gustatorily will definitely diagnose the the molds <laughs> i think that's the key right i mean uh, yeah yeah awesome well thank you so much dr speck for being on with us today we appreciate your time thank you and for Bye. all of our listeners out there stay tuned for the next episode of dirty drinks thank you for joining us for today's episode of dirty drinks Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends if they enjoy dirty drinks.